a listener production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Alessandro has been called the rock of Australian food, maybe because he's a giant of a man. But I do know one thing, he's the gentlest and the most warm-hearted fellow you could ever meet. Having cooked all his life as a chef, he has amassed the kind of experience that set him on a path to becoming one of Australia's best restaurateurs. He moved from Italy to Sydney back in 2000 and became the executive chef of the Hyatt in 2005. He opened his first restaurant, Omeggio, in 2009, and it's still one of my Sydney favourites. He's since opened multiple ventures, including Chiosco, which is right next door to Omeggio, just a simpler version of Via Alto and Soto Sopra. His latest venture, Amare in Bangaroo, is possibly his crowning glory. It's glitzy, it's glamorous, and it's getting rave reviews. So life couldn't be better, but it's not all what it seems. This rock has had more than a few horrendous mountains to climb of his own. They are life-shattering, they are life-changing, and they are certainly challenging. Here to tell us all about it, please welcome Alessandro Pavoni. I was going to kick off, actually, because we kind of need to uh, set the scene, but in the intro I said that you've been described as the rock of Australian food. What do you think of that? Who came up with that nickname for you? Uh, I'm not sure. The rock and also I heard the mountain, maybe because I'm on the large side. <laughs> and we don't mean fat, you mean physically imposing. Yeah. I'm not I even come sure. from the mountain. I was a rock climber, so... So maybe there's a connection. There's, a, there's yeah. the mountain, there's the rock, there's the, you know, leviathan of a human being that you are. So talking about the mountains, obviously, uh, you know, you're from Italy. You must be missing your loved ones at the moment, like many of us. Where's the family home? So I come from the Alps, on the, on the Alps and Lake of Northern Italy, exactly from uh, Brescia on the Garda Lake. Yeah. And uh, close to Verona. Yeah, beautiful part of the world. My mom is there, my brother, or my Italian part of the family is there. Yeah. You talk to each other on a regular basis through these difficult Every times? Every Because Italy's day. not been, I mean, we've been lucky in Australia, haven't we? But uh, Italy's been in a hell of a position, hasn't it, right from the start of uh, the outbreak of COVID? Yeah, it's been um, a hell of a journey, you know. My mom is still in a lockdown and uh, in her own. We lost my father last year, so... Yeah, it's pretty tough there. I think, uh, you know, we're so lucky here. Yeah. We should be abs- grateful. Yeah, absolutely. So what was it like growing up? I mean, you know, when I've watched, when I've looked at your Instagram before and I see this kind of, you know, when you because you're a regular visitor back, right, and you see this this beautiful, you know, scenery and you're obviously very married to the idea of being Italian. You know, what what was it like growing up? You know, how do you describe that? Take us to that place. I live in the middle of the Alps, as I say, so winter for me is very special there. That's probably the thing that I miss the most. The snow and the ice. We are uh, in the middle of uh, Valtrumpia Valleys, and uh, in these valleys there is the presence of uh, wood, a lot of uh, waterfall, which they become um, ice waterfall in winter, and our playground was climbing waterfall and and descending very steep slope with a snowball. I was one of the first in Italy going on the snowball. <laughs> All my family are skiers, and my, my uncle was uh, the president of the ski club where they born. 
yeah. in the little village uh, in the mountain. And uh, I was the one that changed the rules, so they hate me for a few years. So when you change the rules, you're on a single board instead of two skis. That's right. You're Back just a, then you're a rebel. A <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a big issue. <laughs> <clears throat> All those years of tradition and you're throwing it out the window. Yeah. So our playground was the, the mountain, the woods, the climbing, the skiing, the snowboarding, but also the wind on the lakes. Uh, Lagarda Lake is famous for uh, windsurfing, kitesurfing, yeah. because there's a con- consistent wind. Yeah. Well, I have to give you my claim to fame then, because I'm from this little island called Hailing Island in England, which is certainly not Lake Garda, trust me. But apparently, that's where the first windsurfer came from. Anybody oh, really? that's yeah, anybody that's listening can argue with that. But on the Solent, which is between the Isle of Wight and Hailing Island, is where windsurfing kicked off. And we had a couple of world class windsurfers when I was a kid. I remember one of the the other local kids in our year at school um, was you know was the first one I think I'd ever never heard of it, but got sponsorship and all sorts of stuff for for windsurfing. Who would have thought? That's huh? awesome. Huh? I thought it was a Y or something. Like yeah, that. that's what I thought. But Hailing Island's hanging on to that claim to fame. I don't know whether it's true, but. You know, <laughs> doesn't have much more to cling That's on awesome. to in fame other than the Romans. So what was what was summer like? You know, I mean, were we talking foraging and shooting and connected Look, to the land or were we talking yeah. naughty boy in town and, and misbehaving? Well, yeah, a bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> but I was never a big hunter. I was more, mostly the butchery part that I love. Hunting family, butchering, and, uh, and there come the cooking. Yeah. The cooking. The Alps food is quite different to any other Italian cuisine. And that's very interesting because the diversity of the terroirs that we have. So I get into that at quite a young age because my grandfather was a hunter and my grandmother was the best chef on earth, basically. <laughs> and she was cooking and cleaning little birds, frogs. And she was an expert on foraging, which uh, seems like uh, today is fashionable. But uh, my grandmother was an expert back then. Yeah. Out of necessity? <clears throat> I mean, when you say little yeah. birds and frogs, I mean, you know, I'm sure there's a few people listening going serious. Now, what, yeah. what would she come up with, with, with ingredients like that? Little birds, we have different techniques to cook them. Like on the speed, uh, depending on the size. The very small one, we cook it in, in butter. And they be, my wife called them birds biscuits because they get really crunchy. <laughs> and usually the, the best ones are the red belly robins, I think you call them in English. Yeah. And they're wonderful. Then uh, the frogs, we do different ways with uh, chives, with cream. We fry like a cotoletta, like with breakfast. And, and the whole uh, frog or just the legs like the French? So the, the frog, uh, when they're alive, you cut the head off. Yeah. My grandma teach me, put a toothpick on the spine so they they stay yeah. still, and then you peel them, you take the organs out, and then that's it, and then you eat it. So any vegetarians thing. listening to this, you need to tune out. Yeah, I'll do I'll do a disclaimer at the beginning <clears throat> that no, yeah, um, you can't turn like, frogs. Uh, I look, I'm you know all the foodies that are listening to this, they're going yes, you know, because that's what it's all about. But there are some sensitivities around what people eat, aren't there? Yeah, but back then uh, when they are growing up, there is the little. The frogs are wild, the birds are wild. They, they were like, they need to feed themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I read somewhere that, um, I suppose you need to tell me about it, that there was a three-kilo chicken that your grandmother cooked. 
that apparently so, changed everything. That's a one hell of a chicken, three kilos. Most chickens are about, about 1.5. Oh, a hen. Here we go. Yeah, it's a hen, which is my favorite meal. Uh, we do stuff, hen, with uh, my grandma's stuff, stuffing. Very good. The vegetarian stuffing, <laughs> but inside the, the hen. And, uh, what, yes. what was in that stuffing? Break it down for us a little bit. So there is uh, a breadcrumb, parsley, uh, chives, b- b- lots of butter, yep. and uh, broth. So put it together. Burn butter with the herbs, add it to the breadcrumbs, give it an amazing flavor. First, you got to get the live hands. She taught me how to kill it and everything. And uh, stuff it and then poach it. And she used to do one for me and one for the rest of the family. <laughs> Hang on a minute. So you demolish a whole three kilo yeah, hen with thing. stuffing. Yeah. Well, that's where the mountain man came from. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's I don't it. know how you that's get like, that one. That's, uh... that's like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, they, they, Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the pumping iron days used to say they'd sit there and demolish a whole chicken. And yeah. how old were you when you were demolishing a whole hen by yourself? Maybe 12. Oh, you're in the wrong career. I was bigger <laughs> than now. 118 kilo was wow. at so, the age of 12. So did you say this was a poached chicken? So would you get a broth to go with all that? Three hours yeah. of cooking. Yeah. Usually you cook it with um, beef tongue because the stock that you make, that is the perfect stock to cook risotto milanese uh. the day after. So you got the boiled meats and then after... The day after or the night, depend. You have the risotto with the broth. It's like medicine, man. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to eat. And using everything up. It's a, what is a, a bolito misto, isn't it? Which is the, yeah, the, boiled, the boiled meats. These two, the tongue and the boiled hand, are stapler of the bolito misto. Was this the thing that got you into cooking? Was there a moment that you remember that you went, this is what I want to do with my life? Well, actually, it was... Um, my great-grandmother, which is the mom of the other grandmother, not yeah. this one, she came from Mantova. So they're famous for the pumpkin tortelli, ravioli. And uh, I remember every second Sunday or the last Sunday of the month, she was doing this ravioli and she was, you know, booking the pumpkin in advance from her friend, the vegetable guy, and then she was going three days before to check them, you know, smell them and knock on them. <laughs> and then she was making the feeling the day before. And then in the morning of the Sunday, we were helping her to make all these amazing tortelli. The thing that always struck me was like, um, she was able to give us, uh, to the family and the friends, emotions. And I never forget, and I, and I was thinking, I thought to myself, I want to be able to do that one day. Yeah. It's like uh, it come across like an art, you know. Could be someone to play an instrument. Yeah. When you say emotions, what do you remember <clears throat> from back then? But I remember, um, you know, my grandmother thinking about her childhood memory, which was growing up with that dish. Right? And today, when I make that dish, I have actually have it in the menu now on Amara. That's my childhood memory with my great-grandmother, right? So those flavors, they bring you back to the past. And uh, it's something special, I think. Yeah. And that's that becomes multi-generational then. If it's your great-grandmother and then that's past right. your grandmother and then passed down, you know, to your mother, I suppose, yeah. to you. That's something incredible, isn't it? And, you know, the whole transformation that she did in making them and everything was a long journey to be able to give this emotion. It wasn't 
it's a simple dish, but it's not simple. Yeah, it's not coming home from work and throwing it together in 15 minutes. No. <laughs> <laughs> Something different. So what was no. the first job, Alessandro? So I went to school at 15 and I started working the weekends in a local restaurant. Every We have three months of school holiday in summer in Italy. And every summer I work uh, as a cook. First summer I work in this restaurant in Limone del Garda, which is a beautiful town on the lake. And I was cleaning pots and making sponge cake and uh, picking herbs and cleaning a ton of pots mostly. <laughs> ton of pots. And what do you remember thinking back then when you were scrubbing the pots, you know, elbows? I just, wanted, I just wanted to live every minute. To be honest, but then the the lifestyle kicking, you know, with the people. The first few weeks I remember very hard. You know, we I live in the hotel. We had obviously accommodation and food, and then we start to go out with the guys every night, and the whole lifestyle of hospitality start to kick in. Then I was forgetting about pots, and then after a few months, few weeks. They start to give me more jobs in the kitchen until you know you get out of the pots and start to cook a little bit and then uh, the passion start to kick in when actually I start cooking yeah well, the well, beginning was hard man it, I think it is for I never forget those mountains of pots I think, it I, is think for I actually cried oh did you come on yeah. tell why tell us well, because uh, <laughs> my, my parents left me there <laughs> at 15 years old and yeah. uh, I said I saw them after three months and I was covered mountains of pots to scrub every day I felt like Far out. This is what it, this is what my life's going to be. Yeah, I always remember one of my first jobs in the kitchen was chopping bones by hand to roast, <laughs> and and you know it would never get past the uh, health, safety, and cleanliness standards in today's restaurants. But we had a big metal bin that was just a prop; it was not a bin. Um, and we used to put this massive block on top of this bin, and then take about forty kilos of bones and chop them with a cleaver, wow. and then get them into roasting pans and get them into the oven. And I thought it was a joke. I just thought, because then the chef was screaming at me because he wanted them, you know, <laughs> chopped at, you know, two the inches. Size. Yeah, like two inches for every bone. And I just remember sweating and he's going, yeah, think of me when you chop those bones. Mm. I go, I am. But I remember doing it and we'd had to do it every day. You know, that was just like one of the jobs, you know, until we got a bandsaw. My God, that was a... What a thing. That was a thing of beauty yeah. when that turned up in the kitchen. Really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> I remember then I worked in France with uh, this amazing restaurant in Lyon and they wanted uh, a brunoise to do the stocks and uh, to do, not the stocks, to do different preparation and and uh, making the brunoise. He was coming with the measuring tape and if it wasn't right, put in the stock and start again. Yeah. And sometimes it was at midnight after... <laughs> From 8 o'clock in the morning in the kitchen at midnight, I throw all my prep away and I have to start again in my own in the kitchen to make it perfect. Yeah, brutal. And Brunoise, for people that don't know, is essentially a tiny little dice, right? Three but he was obviously very, very fussy. You still remember the size, don't you? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it works. So what was, the, what was in your younger days, and we'll move on, but in your younger days, what was the most, uh, I suppose, professionally influential? where you think you learn most and you still hold on to those lessons today? My teacher at school was also a chef in his own restaurant, which is very high-level restaurant, Michelin star and so on. 
and uh, and I start working with him uh, the weekends, and because they were teaching a school only two days, so he was doing that in the his days off basically, and then he was working in his restaurant, and he you know he gave me the passion, he pushed me to go and work, he sent me to France, he sent me to Gualtiero Marchesi, so he was the one that really pushed me to work with the best of the best to learn the best techniques and uh, put my career on the right path. Uh, what was his name? I'll never forget. Giuseppe Mafioli. Okay. And he still have the same restaurant called Ristorante Carlo Magno, uh, Colebato Campiani. Yeah. So still around, still working? Or? Yeah, yeah, still there. So every time After you go home, you 30, go and see him? <laughs> well, every time. He also worked with a famous pastry chef, the business partner. He's called Eugenio Massari which was one of the best pastry chefs in Italy. So we had the opportunity also to go in the pastry shop downtown and, and, and see the techniques and help them out, like a stash. Yeah. And favorite dishes from back then? Can you, th- can you remember any? Definitely the risottos come from there. All my risottos, I learned the risottos with him. Can you I'm give myself. us a little insight to that? And the only reason I'll say that, because I know when we went to Italy with MasterChef, we had the privilege of uh, Galtier, Galtieri Marchese. Gualtiero, yeah. Galtiero. Say it to me again. Gualtiero. Gualtiero. Yeah, we had the privilege of having Gualtiero Marchese oversee one of our risotto competitions and his oh. famous saffron risotto. And obviously none I of our contestants. <laughs> I bet you did. And so they were going to ask some secrets because I remember none of the contestants, he walked past every single one and just with a look of disdain said no. No. Every single one, nope, nope, nope. It didn't matter how hard they tried. It was just never, ever going to be look at, going to be good enough. So it was quite Let an experience. Let me tell you, yeah. throw away a lot of my results. <laughs> I love making this series, and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message, because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. Where else would, did you work that would have, you know, so we've talked about your first job. Did yeah. you, where did you go from there? So after I work with my chef, yeah. first I work on the lake, then I, I uh, to three different restaurants, then I went to work with my chef in this Michelin restaurant in Brescia. Then he sent me to France with Paul Bocuse. I did a year there, and then I came back. I went to Marchesi. Oh no! And then I went in uh, Costa Smeralta, Sardinia, in a five-star hotel there, Cala di Volpe, very, very, very nice hotel. Yeah. Then I went to Gualtiero Marchese, then I went to uh, Three Michelin, then I went to Two Michelin in uh, Le Garda called Villa Fiordaliso. And then I went back to my chef to be a sous chef. I did another couple of years there and yeah. then I came to Australia to yeah. learn English. So having having gone through, you know, we're talking to, you know, some of the best restaurants in the world there, why did you go back to your chef, for example? Was it a kind of a, you know, getting back to your roots or did it kind of recenter you when you did that or? Well, it was also, you know, start to grow in a more management kind of position, but also I had trouble with my physical because I had cancer. 
So those years that I had cancer, uh, I went back. So what, it's the so what, second time when I had the cancer on the lungs. So what age was this? Because this was fairly life-shattering, wasn't it? Yeah, I had cancer in 19 first on the spinal cord, uh, sarcoma, even sarcoma. How did you discover that? Because it's not well, something you think about as a 19-year-old or yeah. aware of or, or I attuned was in to pain. Okay. I was in a very extreme pain. And uh, after months and months of looking, uh, they found it and um, and I was in my spinal cord so they gave me six months to leave and then I did one year of chemo but I was working so the chemo was uh, uh, three days every 21 days for 13 cycles and uh, the 21 day ho at home I was going straight to work I just wanted to be normal yeah. I didn't have any hair or anything so I shaved a couple of my friends <laughs> <laughs> so we were going so around all shaved. Yeah. I shave also the, how you call this one? Oh, on the, the eyebrows, eye. yeah. Yeah, because I didn't have them, so I shaved that to them too. So it was like... So we look like, we look like skinheads, you know, when yeah. we went around, but we actually... Well, and, that's, that's, uh, showing, that's a lot of support from your friends. Very much. Yeah. People don't understand. That was big. You know? I, I can't imagine at 19, what was, you, what was going through your head? I mean, obviously work... You would focus on, but I just uh, think in the beginning I didn't know it was cancer. My mom, uh, my father, hidden from me. But then in the hospital, you know, a room with six people, they all dying of cancer, and the whole world is about people dying of cancer. So I thought, as the only person without cancer is me here. Yeah, and I, I think I cried for one month. But then, uh, I don't know, man, it's like a natural instinct, I guess, and come out, and I just wanted to be very normal. So I couldn't wait a minute when I was back home, still sick, to go to work and to go and party at night, just like everybody else. It was my goal just to be normal. Yeah. So I didn't want to lose a minute. I came back. I used to eat a lot of horse, raw horse meat. Because they they give you your uh, blood cells and uh, my red blood cells was extremely going down, so hey, you have to eat raw meat. So I love ho horse meat raw. Yeah, beautiful carpaccio. I eat that, and my mother usually make for me the ham, boiled ham. Yeah, when I came back from the chemo, <clears throat> and horse meat, and then back to work. Boom, let's yeah. go. But 13 cycles of chemo, yeah. that must just rip every ounce of One energy. month of radiotherapy as well. And radiotherapy, which is even more aggressive, right? So, Look, to be honest, I was very sick when I was in the, the needle went in. I was very sick. And then when the needle got out, I just wanted to, I don't care. Yeah. I didn't remember... Been sick for the 21 days. I remember working hard and party hard. And uh, and then went back for the next three days. It was a cycle of three and alternate with a cycle of five. And after the first cycle, I did one month of radiotherapy, which I had to be in Bologna. The only people that tried to cure me were in Bologna because I had nine months to live, six months to live. I wasn't getting anywhere, but then I went. and <laughs> actually made it through. And then after two years, I was 21. They actually wanted to do this operation that they took a vertebra out of my back, which is what, like, 
unbelievable stuff. I was the number 14 in the world, I think, back then. To get, so that, took, to get that operation. So it was groundbreaking they, at the time. Yeah, because they went in front through the organs and they actually took one vertebra out and leaving the, imagine leaving the bone marrow exposed. And then they took a rib, chop it up, put it in a carbon cage and put it back <laughs> and then fix it with the other billows and above vertebra. Like it's a little bit different bone. from skewering frogs with a toothbrush. Yeah, that's right. Isn't it? A little bit different. I mean, when you're young and when you look back on it, did you have, I mean, if it happened now, maybe the fear would have been much greater than it was <clears throat> when you were younger, do you think, or not? <clears throat> if it happened now, well, it happened 10 years ago with the heart is even scarier and I just took it pretty much the same yeah be normal by tomorrow let's go yeah so do you think it's changed? I don't think you know you need to be crying too much and thinking too much it's just have to keep moving really yeah I mean you know I'm 54 now and obviously I you know I lost my dad to cancer last year and through my life obviously I've known people that have you know had different cancers and everybody deals with it differently some people it's life-changing. You know, people are listening and going, yeah, well, I've been affected and touched by it too. Some people it's life-changing. Some people it's, you know, life-reaffirming. For others, they just carry on as if nothing had happened. Do you think it changed how you thought about what you wanted to do or your, you know, your drive, your ideas? I think um, I'd be very lucky to survive and let's move on. Then I had another cancer after that on the lungs. They took one lung off and now for the other one. So I don't have left lung. And when was that, Alessandro? <clears throat> 24 years old because this cancer went back a metastasis in the lungs. So I did another radiotherapy, chemo, and the whole shebang again. Mm. They burn all my pectoral muscles and my heart below to try to save me. And uh, they saved me. And then I came in Australia. Yeah. After I was twenty-eight, <laughs> so let's 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 take a moment because we we're just trying to absorb all of that. That is a hell of a thing to go through in your life because obviously what's happening here too is that you've got this incredible career running in tandem with your health yeah. that's going up and down. You're working in some of the best restaurants in the world. Yeah. So what gets you to a point where you're going to go? I'm just going to get on a plane or whatever and go to Australia. Yeah, I want to learn English. I didn't like... Uh, you didn't want to go to England? No. <laughs> Fair enough. Like I, I was, my cousin came back from Australia, told me that it was beautiful and I had to learn English. I didn't want to go in England. I've never been in England. I didn't want to go to America. I just got in Australia. I took the ticket and I landed in Sydney. Yeah. And then I thought, now what are I going to do? So... <laughs> I went and looked for a job. I had a great CV, but I couldn't speak English, so nobody wanted me. At the end, I found a job in uh, Leichhardt, where everybody spoke Italian. And I found my wife there, working in the front of house, Anna. Yeah. So then everything, I had a new life. <laughs> so uh, until 28 was one life, now a new life. Yeah. Do you remember what it was like when you, because obviously Sydney is a beautiful place as much as, you know, Lake Garda is a beautiful place. Did you have any first impressions that were either a shock or you thought this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life? No, I didn't want to be here for the rest of my life. My goal was to learn English and work uh, for six months to one year, buy a car, mm -hmm. 
and do the all around the trip around Australia, like a backpackers type of thing, and then move on. And I did that. I bought a car. I did 38,000 kilometers around Australia. I went everywhere, living in the car, making pasta on the boot of the car <laughs> every night in the middle of the desert. The whole what, what car was it out of curiosity? Was it um, an old bomb or did it, was it something no, decent? No, it was a very funny. It was a Holden Camira. Ah, yeah. Which is, we went to the Kimberley, <laughs> believe it or not, with that yeah. car. It takes an Italian to go through the Kimberley in a Camira, yeah? Everybody <laughs> laughed at us, but we did it with a mattress uh, on the back instead of the back seats. And then I went to Bermuda because my goal then was going to pursue my career, back into my career. And I went to, to this famous restaurant in Bermuda. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a great con uh, con contract. Um, and, and did you uh, take uh, Anna with you or? Was, no. No, you left her behind. Left it. And then, <laughs> <laughs> but then I was in love. So uh, we, we meet back in France because she was then studying in France. So I went and looked for her, got her, brought her to Italy, spent a few months in Italy and then we came back in Australia. Yeah. And this is where you found yourself at the Hyatt or? We I worked another few years as a head chef in the restaurant there in Lycar where, uh, you know, the, it was uh, like a family for mm. me, yeah? Yep. And then I went to the higher. I spoke English by then, but a little bit better. I, I remember the higher the food and measure director, she was helping me to do the email every, every night because nobody could read those emails. <laughs> <laughs> So she was helping me to write that down properly before I send my emails. Yeah, big hotel. I mean, you got to play the politics. You got to be part of the team, right? Yeah, yeah. It was wonderful time. I learned a lot. Probably one of most important part of my career was being uh, at the highest as executive chef because I learned how to run a business and not only how to cook. Yeah. I knew how to cook. I didn't know how to run business yeah and how to manage people how to deal yeah, with lots people, of people different departments the costing your cost food cost all the cost you know yeah so a measure where did that come out of was it a, then, a, a, bolt, uh, a bolt of lightning because yeah. that's got to be one of the most beautiful places to have a restaurant in australia everybody thought i was an idiot back then but yeah like uh, I had a contract in Hong Kong, Grand Hyatt, to go there, and uh, I scraped it to my friend uh, Giovanni Pilo. Giovanni told me, oh, this is this place, you love it. I went down there, the restaurant was closed by months before, many months before, so it was full of cockroaches and everything, but the, the location really reminded me my lakes. So it's looking over Middle Harbour, so... yeah. It's beautiful position. Gorgeous place. So I thought I got to do it, so I did it, yeah. And a, an amazing business too. I mean, beautiful food. Uh, you won your first hat. You've won two hats since and yeah. many accolades. Yeah. One of the, I had a two heart attacks as well. Oh, and this is in between. <laughs> I, read, I read that one of the heart attacks was you having a, you were having a surf, so you were just out on your own having a surf. That's the second one. Okay. The, the AV one. Did it frighten you? The heart attack came because the treatment of the radiotherapy on the left lung before they took it away. 
burn the arteries of my heart. So <clears throat> first heart attack, I actually went to work for three days. I was still at the high, just right before I opened for major. And they put two stands. And nine months after I opened the restaurant, I was surfing in Long Reef and I had massive heart attack. Which I drove to the hospital and <clears throat> just a few hours to leave, uh, they told me after. And they did double bypass. That was a bit harder to get through because I couldn't really... Yeah, it was a bit hard to... I, I went to work, but I was sitting on a chair all yeah. day in the and this, kitchen. Was this, had you opened a Meggio by then, or was this when you still had... Yeah, in between. My goodness. So <laughs> now you're a family man, you've got responsibilities, you found it. Did you feel that Two your kids. health was failing? Did you have any sense, you know, when you were surfing? Because you're obviously doing healthy stuff, and <laughs> did you get a sense that things weren't quite right? Well, with the, between the first and the second heart attack, yes. Those 10 that they put in, they never uh, worked very well, and I felt that. And very hard, you know, to, for them to understand as well because the condition of my arteries can't handle, hang on to the stand. So they broke and went in the system and then blocked two major arteries at the same time. So I felt I felt always this pain for uh, nine months, and then they broke finally. Yeah. Nearly died. And then and since then, how have you have you changed your life, your habits, your Look, how you think they, about things? Well, totally. But mostly it happened when uh, my daughter born, which is seven years ago. That I thought to myself because also they found uh, rheumatoid arthritis on me. So immune system disease. So I thought, you know, if I want to go when the, my daughter is, say, 14, 18, I want to be able to surf with her. So I'm going to start to be healthy now. And if I want to reach within a good shape by yeah. then. Yeah. So I did change. Uh, I tried a few different diets mostly. And uh, and then type of training. I started with many many years of yoga. Uh, now I'm functional training. Lots of different uh, sports I do. Yeah. But the diet very important for many years. Mostly fasting. Okay. The in intermittent fasting is the one that really saved me. Because uh, I read somewhere that you've eliminated a lot of meat, if not all. <clears throat> no, I I did try a vegan. Yep. For one year. And it, it absolutely make things worse for me. It's because the uh, the intake of sugar promote uh, inflammation. So uh, obviously, if you have grains, and wheat, rice, it's all become glucose, and uh, you gotta the pancreas need to release insulin. Uh, therefore, you you gotta stop inf your body start to stop the inflammations. Yeah. Then and. And I have to try to avoid that because rheumatoid arthritis is inflammation. Yeah. yeah, sure. So your immune system keep trying to fix inflammation that, that they don't exist. So you got to minimize, minimize that. So I went totally the opposite and uh, I went on the uh, protein and plant, mostly uh, greens plant and protein 
any protein. Yeah. Eat. So that's what you do today? Yeah, but I think the really, really save me is I don't eat for at least 16 hours to up to 20. Yeah. Ideally one meal a day. When I do one meal a day, I feel like a, like a rock. <laughs> <laughs> so is this, is this all kind of self-experimentation? You know, when totally. you say, so you, you, you've narrowed it down and gone, I function brilliantly on one meal a day, and I presume you jam all of your nutrients and things into that meal, so it's something yes. really, really good. Unbelievably good for me. Yeah. Actually, if I can manage to eat once every two days, it would be even better, but I'm in the wrong business. I was going to say, I mean, already <laughs> I'm just, I'm like, my goodness, what would I do? And already, you know, for a start off, you're selling, telling an Italian you can't eat, you know, or eat lots of pasta and things like that. It, you know, already you're compromised. Yeah. And then you're eating oh, once a day. Then. It's so, not designed for that. Yeah. And I and I read too that you do Wim Hof, which is breathing. Wim Hof every morning. <clears throat> that is very powerful. Yeah. So it's kind of Before oxygenating your system. That's right. It also change your mood mm -hmm. because I had a little bit of depression here and there. So that, that helped a lot. And then, you know, I, I do my training in the morning, 30 minutes strong, heavy lifting. Yep. Alternating one day of that, one day of one hour sparring jujitsu. Yep. And um and that is like for me, I sleep, I eat, I do Wim off, I do my training, I do I do my day. And then you so go it's to work. a compulsory for me. <laughs> it's compulsory. So basically before you go to work, you're you're engaged in about two or three hours of Alessandro time where it's all about centering yourself. Yeah, 5.30. 45. Yeah, every day. No day off? Ever. No sleeping on Sunday? I had the day off and I did the operation on my heart. I did an ablation last in uh, November. So you so took I a day off for that? Uh, two, two days off. <laughs> that was the only two days off of the, my morning routine, including training, yeah. since January 2019. My goodness. That's a driven individual. I mean, I've been following your jiu-jitsu journey for a while. How long have you been doing that for? About, what, five years or so? Four uh, years. Four years, yeah. What, what belt are we now? I mean, we don't care about belts. I'm a, yeah, blue. Blue belts. Blue. Amazing. How do you stay motivated to get up in the morning every day and do that? Where does that come from? So when you wake up, you always have a voice that tells you, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> in the beginning, it's hard to manage the voice. Now that voice actually excites me. When uh, the voice says, don't do it, I'm like, ah, yes, really? I'm going to do it now then, just to shit over the voice. Yeah, it's a little rebellion. <laughs> I'm going to try yeah. that. I'm going to try that. Actually, yesterday, before I had a workout yesterday, and it was raining, it was horrible, and where we're living at the moment, I keep planning on... Uh, building a gym, but at the moment it's the garage, right? And I go, oh, it's raining, it's cold, I'm not going to do it. That was my voice, don't do it, don't do it. And yeah. eventually I just went, come on, guys, you can it, do it. And it I believe it or not, when you reach a certain point, harder it is, more exciting it become. If it's raining and shit, it makes me even more excited to defeat that voice. Mm. So what I want to know is do you use that same motivation in your career now, in that restaurant career? Because how many restaurants, I mean, you know, have you run <clears throat> now that have been part of your group? It's must four or five. You know, this latest venture, venture, which is Amare, is the biggest that you've done so far and must yeah. have taken a lot out of you to open. Well, yeah. 
I mean, yeah, that's a huge opening, obviously. Also because it was a, a, a building, so two-year project for design and concept. And then obviously one of the most uh, astonishing building in Australia. So, And this is at Barangaroo? Yeah. So when you go through the build as well, it's a lot of challenges, you know, to make things work. And then we're talking about a restaurant that can do 600 cover a day. Uh, and uh, we have just under 200 staff. So set everything up to have uh, the type of service that I was dreaming about. It uh, was a big challenge. And to find the right people, fly them. Luckily, I had a lot of people came before the pandemic start. And uh, they were parked in uh, my restaurants or friend restaurants for the time being. Yeah. So have you, you've employed Italian staff to come out? I had uh, people that worked with me before, which they're all very big professional Italian, went to school like I did, but for the front of house. Yeah. Um, so that you know they're going to carry the concept and be able to, yeah. you know, Because this concept is mostly about the table side service and that you need skills. Which yeah. I, I want to show the Australian young people that service front of house is actually a profession that you can pursue for the rest of your life. It's not only a job to make some money to pay uni or to travel. Yeah. And, uh, and then now we're teaching to the people there these techniques and this art. And uh, they are uh, very proud. So I start to breed in people. And I, and I wish everybody would do that. And I wish schools would, would be able to have in schools in Australia that actually teach that. Yeah, that kind of inspiration. I saw a post from Neil Perry because he'd obviously popped in for something to eat and I watched uh, one of your staff make pesto yeah. in, in the biggest mortar and that I've yeah. ever seen. But I essentially just more. the process of making that pesto and the pleasure in seeing that is really something special. Absolutely. So they... they And they need to be proud of what they do. It's our fault, you know. We've been doing this amazing, complex, plated food, and they only transport yeah. from the kitchen to the table. And the, the real hard art of service was demolished. So now they even fillet in a fish table side is is it's a beautiful thing to see. You need yeah. to know how to do it. You know, serving a pasta, making a pesto finish a gelato. That is uh, what brings service to life, the theater of it. And um, we need to be proud of it and teach more and do more to have more professionalism in front of us. That's the old school way that we used to do in Italy and Europe. Your times as well, I guess. Yeah. I look back on my time at the Connaught, for example, which was an old French haute cuisine. And, you know, used to see the waiters go upstairs in their tails. And that was back in the day. We weren't allowed to eat in the restaurant. We weren't yeah. allowed to mix with the, the, uh, the expensive clientele, the wealthy clientele. But they used to do everything. I remember dishes like uh, we had a dish called Poussin Souveroff, for example, which was little baby chickens which were cooked in this big uh, terrine, the stuff with foie gras and, uh, and 
perigord truffles, and then all sealed in with a rapier, which is a bread. Wow. And then that would go upstairs, and that was the last we saw of it. The waiters would crack the bread in the center of the table, lift the tureen lid off, everybody would lean in and smell the truffles, and it was all part of the theater. And then they would break it down, you know, break those poussins down, Garadon style, and then serve it up to all the, the clients. Amazing. And I always remember thinking back then, or not thinking back then, or probably thinking, you know, oh, I wish I could plate that up. And then, like you say, we're responsible for it. You take the mm. idea of that dish, you turn it into something that's a la carte and finished in the kitchen and pretty. You then later on in life, I remember thinking, that's a shame. I'll never see that again, ever. Unless oh, I, let's, bring, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. I'll come to the restaurant and we'll do Poussin Suvaroff. Yeah. Italian style. You know, in France, <laughs> we used to do the one on Vessi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The in the bladder. Goose. We did the wow. same thing. Pigeon Vessi. Beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. I remember going to Bacuse myself and uh, Mandy, my wife, had the chicken en vessie. Yeah. And she said, what is that? I said, I'll tell you after. <laughs> so, Alessandro, I need to let you go because I know you've got to rush off for lunch service, but I have to ask you, in business now, because you've had a number of very successful restaurants and, and you love Omeggio, and now you've got your new baby, which is Amare, what do you think is the highlight so far of what you've achieved? Or is it hard to pick? In business, well, definitely Ormeggio and Amara, you mentioned. If it wasn't for Ormeggio, I wouldn't get to Amara. The highlight right now is Amara because this is the latest. But Ormeggio set up for a lot of things. But before that, it was definitely my experience on the Hyatt where I start to know people as well. Yeah. So Ormeggio, you know, helped me a lot in my career and between the mistakes we make and everything, we learn how to run a business, which will get us where we are today, which is a new challenge. And I'm looking forward to other challenges. Anything that you can give us a little inkling <clears throat> towards? What do you think uh, is the next four or five years for Alessandro Pavoni? Uh, a lot more coming. A lot more uh, coming. So yeah. hang on. Strap in. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, it's a secret. Okay, all right. I don't mind a secret. We can get you back on and you can tell us all about it when it becomes a reality. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you. I tell you what, I don't think doing one hour of a podcast gives you kind of a full appreciation of the battles that you've been through, especially personally and with your health, and also a full appreciation of what you've achieved professionally. I love your restaurants. Next time up, I'm in Sydney. Can I call you and get me a little table so I can do oh, watch, watch the pesto sure. being made? <laughs> Because it's, it's a wonderful thing. And I'll let you into that little secret of the Poussin Suvaroff too. I'll give you the recipe. <laughs> yeah, it'll be amazing. Thank you. Good stuff. Alessandro Pavoni, thank you so much. So now for my tips and tricks. And let's talk about risotto. Because even on MasterChef, it was known as the death dish. And principally because no one ever seemed to get it cooked just right. And just right means just cooked. Still firm. And if you press one of those grains, it should have a little star of starch in it. Which means it's got a little bit of a bite to it, but most importantly, it should be bound together with a beautifully soft and luscious starchy liquid. Now to get that, you need to add the stock a little bit at a time towards the end. Make sure you stir to release the starches, almost stir vigorously to release the starches so that you get that viscous liquid and it should be tasty and delicious, of course. And then the secret, take it off the heat, let it sit for a minute before you eat it because it does its last little bit of cooking and that last little absorption of liquid right at the end. And a risotto 
should never be piled high. It should never be stodgy. You should never sit there as if it can't move. It should actually gently fall back on itself. Then you know that you've got the perfect risotto. So serve it almost like a little pool of rice on a plate, not in a bowl, to really truly appreciate it. Give it a go. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Swalensky and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.